actually, I don't think that Britain did become a nation state um, after the end of, uh, of empire, not only because it had colonies, but because it went from empire, there was some overlap with its membership of the European Union. So it actually just became a member of a, a transnational organization. And it's actually only now in the wake of um, the referendum on, on Britain's membership of the European Union that we're seeing Britain kind of struggling, to put it mildly, with the question of what it is as a nation state, you know, what it would mean for Britain. To, and it's not pretty, as we can see. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahima Manzil Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world and therefore how we transform it. This week's episode is a bonus episode. I really wanted to get it out in time for the new year, despite the usual fortnightly releases, because it really is a conversation that as much as it's damning and an indictment of Britain and reminds us of how overwhelmingly racist the society we live in is, it's also a greatly hopeful conversation and a reminder that it really matters what we call things and we have the power to rename and that language in of itself is a form and a tool of empowerment. So the conversation I had was with Nadine El Anani. Nadine is an amazing scholar. She is a reader in law at Burbeck School of Law, and she's the co-director of the Center for Research on Race and Law. She teaches and researches in the fields of migration and refugee law, European Union law, protest and criminal justice. She has written for The Guardian, the LRB blog, Pluto blog, Verso blog, Open Democracy, Media Diversified, Left Foot Forward and Critical Legal Thinking. And her book, Bordering Britain, Law, Race and Empire, was published by Manchester University Press last year. And it's this book about bordering Britain that we really focus on in this episode. I really hope you enjoy it and I look forward to hearing how it was. Hi Nadine, so lovely to have you on season two. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. Um, thanks for your patience with this. We're having some technical issues for any listeners. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to jump straight in, Nadine. Today we're going to be um, looking at the binary of Britain as a nation and Britain as an empire. And I think maybe to help everybody get us on the same page, it would be interesting to know the space you're coming from. So maybe the work that you've done before, what it was that initially made you even interested in the question of what Britain is. Yeah, so I've always been interested in the question of racism. Um, I guess, personally, my own experience growing up in Britain in a very white part of the country in the southwest um, meant that I experienced racism um, and also was always aware of my parents or became increasingly aware of my parents' difference and our difference and how that sort of impacted on our lives and the way we were seen. 
Um, and so I became interested in, yeah, the question of migration, of movement, of racism. And I've been sort of studying that and, you know, in an academic sense, but I've also been engaged um, politically in an activist sense on that question. And yeah, I did, I did my PhD research on um, refugee law, um, on immigration, questions of immigration uh, in terms of um, looking at Britain and Europe and um the eu and yeah and then this book is you know uh i guess a product of that work but but you know a, a very different product in its end point than you know um than it was yeah. in, its, in its doctoral place that's really interesting that's that's interesting because i think when uh i don't know most people most of us when we think about britain um we don't necessarily like have that legislative framework to think through or we're not thinking about like what Britain has kind of said about itself through law and I guess in a way that's a bit um <laughs> probably a bad way of putting what, what some of what your book does um but I guess to to help unpack that and, and to think about that um maybe a good beginning to breaking down this binary and thinking about the themes in your book um is for us to think about the way that these two concepts are presented to us more generally because Obviously, there's this story that we have about Britain having formerly been an empire that's ended, and now Britain is a nation. And so I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about how that binary is presented um, and, you know, how these two entities are framed as opposites. Yeah, well, it's exactly as you say. Um, the the given story is that Britain was an empire, there was British colonialism, and now that's over. That's something in the past. And today... Uh, Britain is simply a small island, a nation state, um, and that's you know you can contrast that with with a with another binary between this kind of colonialism that's over that that ended and a settler colonial context which is kind of accepted um, as being uh, an ongoing situation of colonialism because of course there are people indigenous peoples who continue to make claims um, on land that was stolen from them. So those kinds of situations, um, at least in critical scholarship, are understood as ongoing colonial situations, whereas Britain is definitely one of those, okay, colonialism was something in the past, it's now over, Britain's a nation state. And, you know, as you'll know from the book, the book really looks into how law plays a role in um, actually demarcating that exact binary that that that, and really building that the mythology around that binary that colonialism is something in the past and Britain's just just a nation state now for sure that's really and that's really helpful because I think even you know you've talked a bit about you growing up and I think when, when I was growing up there was there was a reason there was a kind of um part of my own experience made me think that this binary didn't make so much sense because for me to be in this country as the grandchild of Pakistani immigrants, um, you know, the only reason they were here in the first place was because there was this connection between this island and, you know, South Asia. So I think it's very clear, you know, that, that, that there are questions to be raised. So for us to begin to raise those questions, um, you know, how can we start to unpick this binary? Um, you've already mentioned the law. Is that perhaps the best way in? Or, or what is the central um, kind of assumption that we can begin to to, to use to unpack this binary and, and, the, and the demarcation of nation um, and empire or the split between empire ending and nation beginning? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways in, um, you know, a basic study of history would be a way in, you know, um, just sort of understanding how Britain came to be the wealthy, sort of plentiful place that it is. Um, you can't answer that question without 
um, looking into its colonial history and seeing um, where its wealth came from, transatlantic slavery, colonialism. Um, so, you know, there's, there's obviously a historical excavation that could be done and, and indeed has been done um, into presenting a counter narrative to that, to that one of Britain was empire and is now a uh, nation state. Um, of course, for me, my way in um, is law. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm legally trained. I'm a, I'm a legal academic. And I think a lot about how law shapes the way we see the world in a way that I think a lot of people um, who maybe aren't thinking in legal terms and studying law and teaching law maybe don't think about that so much. Um, law tends to be thought about as something that kind of falls from the sky and is this neutral, objective, fair thing Definitely. that we can, yeah, just rely on for, for good things like justice and security and rights and safety and and um, and and that, that and that there's no question that if the law says something, then that's the right answer. Um, and, you know, a lot of law is taught in that way. You know, you come into the classroom and most law schools will teach law as here's the law. You know, don't question where it comes from. It's social context. It's historical context. It's political context. And then here's a fact scenario. And then you apply that law to fact scenario. And, you know, I think people in their everyday lives and we're thinking about the context of immigration. There's a lot of talk about illegal migrants, you know, people who are here illegally. People who don't have a right to be here. And that kind of language is invoked in the media, in official discourse, and is obviously um, widespread in the public um, uh, um, discourse around uh, who has a right to be here and who doesn't. So, so, so you see the law is invoked in these really um, sort of unquestioning ways. Um, and so I guess um, I think it is important to approach the question of Britain was empire and is now nation state by looking at how law um reinforces that incorrect and mythological um, narrative. And I can talk about that a bit if, if you Let's want. Let's please, or... yeah, because I think that's one of the things that I found most interesting about your book is this this piece of legislation, 1981 especially. And I wondered, yeah, you go ahead and tell us in your own words. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I do think that in order to get to the breaking of that binary and to kind of think about um, challenging the notion that, you know, empires past and uh, nation states now is to to think about um, how law has played a role in constructing or constructing a Britain that seems like a legitimately bordered sovereign nation state. And so to do that, you do need to go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, a time when the British Empire was facing a lot of defeats um, in its colonies, um, independence movements were um, driving British authorities and British forces off their territories. Um, so Britain was essentially losing, was being defeated um, in the colonies. And of course, um, it was aware that it had a lot to lose in terms of its political influence over the world, its global power. Um, and it was looking elsewhere for riches. So it was looking towards Europe and thinking, okay, you know, maybe that's where wealth and power lies. Um, and up until the 60s, Britain had avoided passing any kind of restrictive immigration legislation that would target racialized Commonwealth citizens and colony subjects. And it was doing that because it wanted to maintain the myth that Britain um, was an empire that was based on notions of unity and equality 
Um, of course, if it passed legislation that was racially exclusionary, it would be very clear that that was a myth. Of course, it was a myth because the British Empire was um, totally built on an idea and a practice of white supremacy. Um, but uh, the, the myth had the lie had to be maintained in order to keep the stability of the empire, to keep it strong. But um, in the 60s and 70s, um, legislation was eventually passed in, in the face of the defeat of the empire. Um, the 1971 Immigration Act was passed, which made whiteness um, key to British identity because it invented this concept called patriality. Um, and it said that only patriots, those born in Britain or with a parent born in Britain, had a right of abode, which means a right of entry and stay in Britain. So it's a completely invented concept. And of course, if we think about what was going on in 1971, statistically, a person born in Britain was 98% likely to be white. So you can see that the effect of that legislation was to target racialized um, Commonwealth citizens, colony citizens, even though it didn't say in the law, this is about keeping racialized people out. It clearly was about that. And then that legislation culminated in the 1981 British Nationality Act, which I think you just mentioned, which... Um, really did sort of raise for the first time this idea of Britain as a post-imperial, territorially defined nation state, um, and actually severed Britain ge geographically for the first time, a kind of notionally white Britain ge geographically severed from, from, from its colonies and the Commonwealth. And it did that by building British citizenship, the concept of British citizenship for the first time. Um, it was a concept of British citizenship, and it was based on that concept of patriality that I just talked about that was um, invented for the 1971 Act. And basically it tied citizenship to the right of entry and stay in Britain. And actually the Conservative Home Secretary at the time, um, William Whitelaw, he said of the Act that it's time to dispose of the lingering notion that Britain is somehow a haven for all those as countries we used to rule. So it was really clear that that was the idea behind this legislation to kind of build Britain as a legitimately bordered sovereign nation state and sort of erase this history um, of empire. And, you know, what I say about that Act is that it wasn't just, it didn't have this sort of um, neat effect of... Uh, of actually ending colonialism, because of course Britain still had colonies, still has colonies today. Um, but what it did do was was of very symbolic importance um, by kind of saying, oh, Britain's now this self-constructed nation state, empire's over. And what that did is send this signal that Britain, the landmass and everything within it belongs to people, British people who are understood as being white because of the, the way the, the um, concept of patriality operated. And then that's actually an act of theft. The legislation itself kind of by pulling up that drawbridge and kind of, um, you know, very clearly demarcating Britain as this, you know, uh, post-imperial, post-colonial space, you know, everything that Britain plundered um, was then understood as belonging to white British people and erased was any kind of connection of where that wealth might have come from and who and who is actually still entitled to having it back. That's so fascinating because I think when we hear narratives now about, you know, um, let's keep Britain white or, you know, make Britain white again or whatever it may be, I think there's no sense that there's a sense that that is coming from a really fringe, you know, extreme kind of um, right wing view. But what I think you expose through this kind of looking at it through the law is that 
actually this is so embedded from a very like mainstream state level that this idea of keeping Britain white or you know making Britain white as as you've shown not keeping it is is actually something that's really like <laughs> so normal so commonplace it's part of that that cent- central to that imagining but then I'm also surprised in the sense that you know that comes so recently 1981 is not very long ago at all you know that's within many people's like living memory very recently and I wonder was it simply the numbers of of people of color that were cu- kind of coming to live in Britain at that time that was the issue or why is it in that moment that this becomes really important to demarcate I think that it becomes important because um Britain was weighing up it's, you know, it's, it was cutting its losses. It was thinking, look, the empire is on the back foot now. We're being defeated. But that's not the story that they're going to tell. Of course, the story that we end up hearing is that um, independence was given, you know, uh, over um, to populations who had been civilized through a process of colonialism. Um, but I think Britain could see that its position was weak. And that, and of course, in a in the context within Britain, having 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 had a Britain that was an empire, that whole existence was predicated on this notion of white British supremacy. Of course, when racialized people began to arrive in Britain, they experienced a lot of racism. There was a lot of um, resentment and hatred. Um, a whole, you know, the white British population were taught to had been taught to see these people as their possessions, as their possessions abroad. And then here they are coming and sort of, you know, behaving like human beings um, and getting jobs and working and passing you in the street. I mean, you know, that was quite the jump to make um, for people. Um, and I think, and, 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 the, and the shameful thing is that officials did absolutely nothing to try to explain <laughs> to the population that migration is positive or that, um, you know, or, or to sort of just hold on to the lie of empire that everybody's equal in, in the motherland. Um, you know, instead, as we know, racial, racial hatred was stoked um, by, opportunistically, um, by officials who, um, and, and, you know, expressed their own sort of fears that they were going to be you know, that what happened in the US is going to happen here and there were going to be race rights. There was a total lack of understanding um, amongst British politicians in that period about why racism took place. Um, that, of course, if you have a whole system of rule that is predicated on white supremacy, if you teach an entire population that they are superior because of the colour of their skin and that they can uh, and that Britain can occupy and colonize and steal and subjugate and enslave um, because people are racially inferior because of the color of the skin. Of course, when racialized people begin to arrive uh, in Britain, there's going to be tension. Um, but there's no. Uh, but that was all exploited and stoked up um, by politicians. Um, and in terms of the timing of that of the of the passing of that legislation, as I say, I think it was a a retaliation in the wake of the defeat of, of empire. It became um, less worth it to, to have a situation where people were able to move freely. And the other thing that is um, important to point out is that in 1948, another important piece of legislation is the 1948 British Nationality Act, that, that piece of legislation rolled out a status called Citizenship of the United Kingdom and Colonies. Um, and it was it was the Windrush could arrive because of that legislation. People could come and work in Britain 
um, because they had a right to uh, uh, under that legislation. But that legislation was not an immigration measure. It was not about facilitating migration to Britain. In fact, when it was passed, there wasn't even a sense, and you can see this when you go through Hansard or the discussions in Parliament at the time, there wasn't even a sense that anybody might arrive as a result of this legislation. The legislation was part, and the movement was outward. Everybody was, white British people were moving to other parts of the colonies to settle the settler colonies. Um, there was no movement coming to Britain, or very little movement coming to Britain at that time. It wasn't even, it wasn't even, it didn't even occur to parliamentarians that this might happen if this piece of legislation was passed. The legislation was passed because Canada was making moves towards um, passing its own uh, legislation, defining its own Canadian citizenship, separate from um, a notion of British subjecthood. It wouldn't um, derive from allegiance to the crown. And this was very worrying for Britain because at that time, the empire was very, very important to Britain economically. Um, and so it wanted to send a strong signal that the empire was was good and strong and that this was a way of doing it by rolling out the status. But the movement was outward. And then, and then of course, when you look at Hansard and parliamentary, um, parliamentary discussions around the time this legislation, immigration legislation was passed that did prevent people from coming, um, you know, it's talked about at the time, oh, well, we couldn't imagine a situation at that time that, you know, people would actually come. And when the, when the Windrush did arrive, politicians were shocked. Officials were completely shocked and they didn't know what to do. And they, and they, they, short of passing legislation at the time to prevent that movement, they did do everything they possibly could sh to stop people from coming, you know, putting pressure on on uh, on the governments um, of of the colonies and Commonwealth countries where people were coming from, um, trying to stop, trying to get them to stop the movement at source. Um, they discouraged people from being able to come. They left. They neglected people. Uh, they didn't give them access to housing and rights, etc. They wouldn't pass race discriminate anti discrimination legislation um, because they didn't want people to come. Um, and they even there was even this kind of very uh, dodgy thinking um, about trying to return people to Africa, um, where they sort of technically, officially first ever come from, even though, of course, they traveled from the West Indies at that time. And then there was this kind of, um, well, you know, due to difficult psychological uh, issues, we may not be able to do that, which seems like a clumsy kind of reference maybe to slavery. I mean, it's very weird, but it's just, but there were these kinds of um, desperate efforts and attempts in trying to think through how to stop this movement. That's amazing because I think this this idea that it's a sort of unforeseen consequence, you know, our presence here is an unforeseen consequence of something that was that never imagined us. I think what that really speaks to as well is, uh, I, I sense from what you're saying, there's this real entitlement as well that these kind of legislators and politicians had about having not even the capacity to imagine that those who they had, you know, the countries they've occupied, the peoples that they've had dominion over could imagine that they actually did have some relationship to this this island um is really interesting and it kind of it makes me think about the the broader entitlement that you speak about throughout the book which i think is also linked to the, the idea that you know we can go extract all this wealth we can go kind of collect all these resources steal all this labor whatever it is and still not imagine those people have any right to it and you actually i just wanted to quote a little um fact i suppose from your uh, introduction that is really fascinating i think where you say that in 1833 when britain abolished slavery um it raised the modern day equivalent of 17 billion pounds through taxation and loans to pay compensation to british slave owners for the loss of their quote unquote property 
And you say that this compensation scheme was the largest state-sponsored payout in British history until the bank bailouts of 2008, which is sort of just like beyond, you know, I can't even think that, that to think about that and to even have that fact said aloud, you know, goes against this entire narrative of benevolence. And then what you say even more interestingly is that those funds that, you know, that were given to those slave owners are now to this day infused in Britain's commerce, you know, cultural, imperial and political institutions. And I think that connection, you know, which is really important in your whole book, is is really at the heart of this as well, because that entitlement that you're talking about there, this notion that, you know, what on earth are they doing coming here? And yet at the same time, the entire infrastructure of what makes Britain Britain being built on the back of that empire. And I wonder if I could just ask you a bit to talk a bit about that monetary angle. You know, capitalism seems to be at the heart of this. Yeah, it is for me, it's a really important point to dwell on because just going back also to your earlier question around um, how the situation of colonialism and then post-colonialism was presented, um, usually the, the, the most people will go to in terms of having a discussion around lingering imperial questions around return is of stolen colonial wealth will be, you know, what's in the British Museum and what should be returned. So that tends to be the limit of the discussion. Um, reparations, of course, are talked about, but that's always talked about as something radical that's all, that's just, you know, that, but again, even reparations can take place and does the discussion around reparations take place and thinking, well, colonialism is something that happened in the past. How do we pay back for that? Past. It doesn't actually recognise the sort of ongoing colonial configuration of Britain and how actually what people access and take for granted every day in Britain, things like healthcare system, welfare state, transportation, relative security, education, cultural institutions, you know, all of these things uh, can be understood and should be understood as stolen colonial wealth. And, and there should be questions around uh, who is entitled to access them. Um, and not just a question of, you know, what's in the British Museum that could be returned um, to places where where they were, you know, they, they were stolen from. And so it is about broadening out um, the way we think uh, and conceptualise and understand, you know, what is stolen colonial wealth. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's um, it infuses the the economic system that we have in this country. And it's, you know, Britain... Britain's whole industrialization and the growth of its capitalist economy is embedded in and is a direct result of colonialism. And we can think about how colonialism worked. You know, India had to pay Britain for the export of its own products to Britain, for example. So, of course, India's economy was always depreciating while Britain's economy was always growing. And India's economy didn't start growing until after colonialism ended. I mean, it seems like such an obvious point to make. And yet the mainstream argument that we hear is, well, you know, the railways, you know, Britain gave so much to India. The railways, and you just think India didn't have a growing economy. Like, and that's just the basic measure we talk about in terms of um, what are the prospects for a country is you look at its economy and you look at its growth. And that might be wrong in and of itself to obviously have that kind of economic focus now kind of understanding of the world. But that is such a basic thing that's taken for granted. And yet, despite that, the power of the narrative around Britain having done some kind of favor to um, to its to its colonies is is the dominant one still gets the most airtime. Um and so that's, you know, that's an important point. And then I think that the other thing to mention is that, um, you know, there was so much exploited labor in the course of colonialism um, 
the working class was basically made up predominantly of racialized people. And that's not understood either. You know, there's this sense that, um, you know, the working class is actually conceptualized and understood as something that's white and British, but actually Britain's working class historically is not, it's not, it's not only disproportionately made up of racialized people today here in Britain, but also has throughout all time been made up of um, uh, racialized people. And then of course, if we think of um, racial capitalism and the global economy as being what Britain depends on today through kind of neo-colonial structures, which of course are not are not about direct control, but are maybe about corporate control of the economies of developed countries and unequal trade and debt arrangements, we can still see how Britain continues to benefit um, off the back of exploitative racialized labor. Um, again, and that's of course a legacy of, of colonialism. It's astounding really, because I think when you say it so clearly, you know, it's <laughs> it's sort of ridiculous that there could be any other narrative. And I think, I guess what I'm wondering here is like, Britain doesn't seem to be, it can't be formulated outside of empire. There is no Britain without empire is what you're essentially saying. And, and then that makes me ask, you know, with all these binaries, the really important question I think is, is, is less about kind of how they're incorrect, but like what they function to do. So what having this idea of British empire having ended and turned into this nation, what the function of that is. And I guess the function of that is kind of um, exposed when we think about just how dangerous, I suppose, it, or how threatening it is for you to say what you're saying, which is that Britain cannot be configured outside of empire. And I wonder what you think is the sort of, you know, what is the radical possibility there? Or like, what what is threatened when you say that? And what, what does it mean to try to think beyond or to try to take, you know, try to take Britain as actually this this construct of, of empire that is both continuous and global, what is it that you think this this binary really serves to do today? Because it's clear what it has done in the sense of like really justifying empire and these really violent relationships and this stolen wealth. I mean, um, I mean, first, the first thing to say it would be to say actually, I don't think that um, Britain did become a nation state um, after the end of uh, of empire. Not only because it had colonies, but because it went from empire there was some overlap with its membership of the European Union. So it actually just became um, a member of a, 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 a transnational organization. And it's actually only now in the wake of um, the referendum on, on Britain's membership of the European Union that we're seeing uh, the Britain kind of struggling, uh, to put it mildly, with the question of what it is as a nation state, you know, what it would mean for Britain to, and it's not pretty, as we can see. Um, and so it's only really now, and I suppose, so I suppose it's an open question as to what Britain's going to look like um, as a nation state. Um, it's not looking good. It's, it's not looking good, which does, of course, raise the question of, you know, if you put together my points about, you know, really Britain's up for grabs in terms of what's here, it does raise the question of, well, what is it? And of course, I think you and I both know that James Trafford's just written a book kind of where he sort of brings about the end of the concept and place of Britain through this kind of critique of um, of Britain. Um, if we sort of accept that it is an, a, a, a colonially configured space, um, then, you know, what is the meaning of it? And and I think he looks at this really well. And I know you and I have both, have both endorsed his 
his book. So I definitely recommend people read that. But but I think the question is important in terms of today uh, because it's not just the question of Britain being um, remaining colonially configured. It's not just a question of kind of writing this mythological history around um, the becoming of Britain uh, as a nation state and actually making the case that what's within Britain should be accessible to people who are termed things like irregularized migrants, um, people who apparently ostensibly don't have a right to be here. You know, my argument is that they do. Um, but it's also that we can see the everyday violence, uh, uh, imperial violence ongoing. I mean, we, we just have to look at the Grenfell Tower fire or the Windrush scandal or deaths in police custody, um, disproportionate stop, stop and search. You know, all of the ways in, in militarized forms of policing being um, targeted at racialized people. Um, we look at the Prevent program. We look at uh, we look at so-called humanitarian intervention, imperial wars. I mean, we can, we, you know, the... This sort of colonial configuration of Britain is 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 very much alive, which means the death of um, racialized people um, who are who remain subjugated in in so many ways, um, and that's empire. You know that's ongoing. That's lingering imperial rule in many ways, um, and so I think I think that's why it's so important to to make that to make that really clear. Yeah, and I think. You know, as you say, the only re- the kind of obvious conclusion is that the more exciting question can, is almost, you know, what what comes after Britain, right? Like, is there a possibility of of because I think what you raised earlier is really interesting that it's not an easily solvable kind of situation where, as you say, you can pay out reparations and all in all injustices is sort of dealt with. And I think this raises really important questions for around conversations to do with abolition and even, you know, transformative justice or what it would look like to kind of um, repair harms that have occurred both historically and presently. I suppose I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, because the, the you know, the thing, the case is well made, right? You've, you've made the case really strongly. And the question now seems to me, you know, how do we, how do we dismantle Britain? You know, how do we? I think, I think it's, for me, it's really difficult those kinds of questions get very difficult for me, like the question of dismantling Britain. I'd love to see it, but I don't <laughs> I, I don't know how you do that without dismantling the whole nation state system, for, ex- for example, um, without challenging deeply, as Siva Mohan Valuvan does, for example, in his book, The Clamour of Nationalism, which I would very much recommend, um, you know, the whole notion of nationalism. There's so much that needs dismantling um, imaginatively, and through imaginative uses of language and in thinking about our practices of resistance, I think before we get to a question of abolition and how to practically abolish things, at least that's how I feel, is that we're not there yet in terms of our our imagining. Because I think that's the other thing that colonialism stole from us all, is psyches, is dreams, is what we imagine ourselves to be, what we desire, what we can even think is so limited by the way in which our world is structured along lines of race, racial hierarchies and inequality and um, white supremacy and privilege. You know, all of those things limit our ability to imagine and to organize. And I don't, and so I, so, so, so there seems to me that there can be so much we can do for each other and with each other in terms of relating to each other. There are things that maybe are not controlled by the state that would maybe help us towards 
making new tools that would then allow a kind of dismantling to occur. And so, I mean, I know it sounds so small, but things like conversation is important. Relating is important. Kind of being in touch with pain that we experience in our individual lives and bodies and then being able to empathize with other people who experience pain in their lives and understanding how pain um, takes place on an individual level, but within a system which um, is structured to produce pain uh, and in an indifferentiated ways, of course, but, but really for all of us. And then, and then I think if, if we can start there, we might be able to actually formulate a kind of politics that would be radical in being collective and coalitional and solidaristic and internationalist and anti-imperialist and anti-racist. And, and I just, it's just, we're not there yet where we have that kind of collective struggle that is not based on a kind of, on the very same horror we see outside of our, you know, things like a zero sum kind of understanding of resources then becomes a kind of zero sum politics in, in organizing. You know, if your oppression is recognized before my oppression, then, you know, my oppression is threatened. So there's a lot of investment actually in victimhood, um, which I think we need to address together so that we can um, kind of share practices um, and share language and share our political energies in a way that can really make us work together, really help us to work together. Definitely. And I, I think that's such a actually really beautiful kind of set of questions that you've raised there because you know, I think in, in a sense, you know, even the purpose of this podcast is to have conversations that maybe lead us to a different type of understanding in the way that you you have put there. And I think, you know, perhaps I am with you in the sense that maybe we're not quite there yet to know exactly what it is we even want to build if we're, we're building another world. But I think it's really interesting to to hear you talk also about kind of um, the very like embodied reality as well of, of being in this world and experiencing the pain and the traumas that you talked about. Because I think on the one hand, of course, there is what we've mentioned, you know, the legislative and the economic aspects of this kind of uh, this colonial violence. Um, but I suppose the thing that is much harder to think about is, you know, how, how, what healing actually looks like, what it actually looks like for, for people to be well, um, communally, emotionally, physically. Um, and I think it, it is important to think about those things. And I'm really appreciative, actually, that you, you raised that as a really valid kind of journey and, and things for us to be thinking about, because I, I reckon that with the kind of with the sometimes with thinking about like these really what can become very abstract notions of like white supremacy and racism, it, it's easy to fall into sort of, um, I don't know, quick, quick fix um, response. And I think what you said as well, also about, you know, this almost kind of competing oppressions type of way of discussing things. I think what it also does is hide, you know, what you mentioned at the very beginning, when I asked you actually why you were interested in this question of Britain, you said it's because you've experienced racism. And I think that's the connection that's central, right? Because, you know, I think oftentimes many of our conversations hide a bigger form of, of white supremacy that I feel personally is really like, you know, with many of these binaries that we've dissected over the, the, the months and almost two years now, it's like at the heart of everything, you know, there is this European white supremacy that kind of is just monster that like erases and eradicates and kind of and, and disguises itself in all these different types of binaries. And I suppose that feels like that's the place, you know, that's the thing that is underpins these things. So whether we're talking about Britain or we're talking about nation states in general, or we're talking about different types of belonging, I suppose it's also about our attachment to that or our investment in that. And I guess 
I don't know if this is something you can answer, but I'm wondering if that also is one of the reasons why people also hold on so much to, you know, Britishness as an identity. And I mean that both in the sense of, so to give you an example of what I'm talking about, you know, after, um, you know, Shamima Begum had her citizenship stripped, I, I noticed amongst a lot of um, other, you know, Muslim people or people of color in general, um, I think it felt more important for some people to hold on to a notion of their own Britishness in the wake of that. I think to kind of distance the prospect that this could ever happen to us, right? Like you kind of other that person to distance that violence from you. But on the other hand as well, you have this notion that, you know, certain people can and can't be British. And I, I guess I'm trying to figure out why it is that this becomes such an important conversation or is it simply a distraction or is it simply to do with, you know, the rights that genuinely do materially benefit your life if you are granted that citizenship and that being quite a valid thing to need and require. I don't know if I, if I so gave me to throw that jumble of, of incoherent thoughts at you. It absolutely is. And it's a huge part of the book, as you know, um, the question of recognition, um, because it's one of the things that um, is so complex about the law. It's not only the thing that borders and prevents entry and is the obstruction to people moving. It's also the thing that you then have to appeal to to get to get a status. And you're not going to get rights unless you have a status. You're not going to get the right to stay unless you have a status. So everybody, understandably, wants a status. And of course, the you know, be all and end all of that, the, the best status to have would be, in theory, British citizenship. And that's becoming more and more the case, as we've seen. Um, because actually, prior to, um, I would say, the referendum, you could have a number of statuses and be secure in Britain, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for maybe not wanting to have British citizenship, it might relate to a question around dual nationality, it might relate to a political thing, it might relate to cost of applying for that, you know, there's all kinds of reasons, you might just be happy with your settlement status, for example. But we really saw this reification, this kind of fetishizing of British citizenship come to the fore, as we see Britain kind of in this moment of transition from EU member state to so-called nation state, Britishness suddenly becomes much more important. And then coupled with that, you had this, you had the hostile environment, the claim being made that certain people weren't British and didn't have a right to stay in Britain. Um, you had a, a vast increase in the number of uh, the use of citizenship deprivation laws. And of course, you were talking about the case of Shamima Begum. Um, and that also then sort of brings to the fore the importance of being British. And I discuss also a case, um, the Rapaya case, which I'm not going to go into here, where basically the, the question of what it means to have a precarious status was decided by the courts. And essentially that pushed us again towards, you know, basically, unless you have indefinite leave to remain, um, you're, you're on a non-precarious status. And the ramifications of that are huge because um, if you are threatened with deportation or removal um, and you've, you've built a family while you're on a precarious status, you, you, know, you don't have much hope in relying on Article 8 and the right to, to, to private family life if you're trying to then make a case, well, I have these family and close connections here and please may I stay. So, um, so yeah, to, to get back to the question of recognition, by kind of appealing to the British state and saying, you know, I meet the criteria, please give me the status. That civilizing logic, that imperial civilizing logic where the British state decides whether you um, have permission to 
access stolen colonial wealth um, and whether you are civilized enough to be granted um, British citizenship. And as you know, there's the good character test. You know, people have to have their finances and orders, all, all kind of things that really sort of suggest if you are wild and unkempt, if you are a savage then you're not going to be um, given British citizenship, if you behave in a way that is... Um, disloyal or can be deemed to be disloyal even if you were a child in the case of Shamima Begum for instance you know then you you lose your um you you lose the great you know honor that it is as a brown person to be a British citizen um and so so I think we've seen lots of things happening together that push British citizenship to the kind of fore as being like the best thing to have and I suppose um I would want us as activists to be wary of that way in which appealing to citizenship. And so, for example, in the wake of the Windrush scandal, a lot of scholars and activists kind of said, oh, these people should be protected because they're British citizens. Um, and again, it's like, well, what happens to people who are not British citizens or who don't meet that criteria or who have had it deprived, um, who are irregularized? Um, you know, what happens to them if you're making the argument that you need to be a certain kind of racialized being in this country in order to be deserving of um, access to the basic means of life. Yeah, no, yeah. And I think that feeds into, you know, all those other binaries around good and bad immigrants and people of colour and, yeah, all the performance that is required to simply, you know, I suppose, yeah, access this thing that safety is is, is capitalised under. So I, th- I guess, so the question that I usually bring up near the end of the podcast then is around, you know, this, if this binary isn't helpful, isn't even legitimate, um, as it clearly isn't, what would you suggest as maybe other set of questions perhaps that you think we should ask when we come across this binary? Or is there, um, you know, is there something really important that we should hold in our minds? And I suppose you have already given us a lot of things, whether that's just simply, you know, really querying this notion of the end of empire at any point, or whether it's actually keeping a focus on what is the, the material wealth of Britain and where it came from? Uh, originally, I think what you were saying earlier about the welfare state itself and education and transport, you know, these are, you know, British Empire hidden in plain sight, right? That's not really any conversations that I think we have very often. So again, if I can just throw that to you, is what's a better way for anybody who's listening to this podcast, who's kind of had this, this binary demolished, perhaps for the first time, but for many people, I'm sure, you know, in, in just a more rigorous way than they thought about before, what can we what can we be doing instead how can, how can we try to move towards that more collective you know understanding that that can bring us to somewhere better i suppose yeah i mean i, I guess i would go back to the question of language because it's so key to the question of binaries and thinking about binaries um but the the i mean if we're thinking about law it really works on the basis of categorizing and categorizing is all about you know, who falls inside the category and who falls outside. So there are so many binaries in the way that law operates and you get um, lines drawn everywhere. So who is deserving and who is undeserving gets decided through immigration law. If you meet this criteria, you're deserving. If you don't meet the criteria, you're not deserving. So those are the kinds of binaries that I would want to challenge. The question of illegal and legal, Um, because actually if we break down if, if we if we take if we take the story that I've told about the making of modern Britain, then Brit- then Britain isn't this legitimately bordered sovereign nation state, but it is the spoils of empire. Colonialism hasn't ended; it's ongoing, and that just means we can change everything. You know, Britain no longer gets known as a host state 
um, as a refugee protecting state, uh, countries which are apparently producing refugees. Actually, it's Britain who's producing those refugees because there are refugee situations and conflict situations because of British colonialism. So everything gets turned on, on its head and all of the binaries are broken down if we actually do this careful historical work and then say, this is the story. And, and you know, something like irregularized migration can be understood not as that, but as part of a long history of anti-colonial resistance, for instance. So that's another way in which we change how we think and how we speak about people as being not entitled, as being actually entitled, and not as being here illegally, but as being here taking back something that is theirs, um, that already belongs to them. And it's actually in being illegal that a forcible return takes place. And that is what makes it radical. So you already get this opening for so many more creative and radical and emancipatory ways of thinking. Actually, people who are so-called irregularized migrants or even just brown and living in Britain or black and living in Britain get to see themselves as entitled um, rather than not entitled, as empowered rather than grateful. And so all of those kinds of binaries get to be broken down if, if we accept the story. Oh, that's brilliant. That's so, um, I don't know, that's really galvanizing. I feel quite, I can see I'm just like grinning at that, at the, the notion of what you're saying. I really love that. And I think anybody who's listening, you know, there's so much, I think even just, even if you don't, if you don't even say these things aloud, I think being able to say them to ourselves, as you said earlier about, you know, colonization of our own psyches, I think there's something so empowering about, as you say, it, it reestablishes or reconfigures your relationship to this place, this space and, and all of its institutions. So, it's transformative. It's transformative. And, and I've seen it. I've seen it when I've spoken, because I've spoken about the book to like college students and they've sort of said, oh, finally see where racism comes from. And also I've, I've got a right to be here because my ancestors built this country, you know, and I, and I don't have to say, you know, I'm entitled. And, and that empowerment, you can see it on their faces. You can see it because, you know, in the wake of Brexit, especially when like, you know, everybody was told to go back to where they came from and being white and British was the only thing that was allowed, that you were allowed to be. I mean, that level of disenfranchisement on a day-to-day -day basis, you're bombarded with it in the media all of the time. And then you get it in the street and then you get it from officials and then people are being deported and it's just everywhere. So it is about empowering yourself to think and feel differently. So if you start feeling differently, if you start feeling powerful, you can actually act powerful too. Oh, Nadine, that's a brilliant place to end the podcast. I think that's such a, yeah, such a hopeful note. And I, and I love that. And I feel like, yeah, it, you know, if we can start thinking in those ways and we can start, you know, we can start changing the world. So thank you so much. I really love having you on here. And, um, yeah, thank you for the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at, at GetViolenceJack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically, and I hope, humbly, about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Mantel Khan. Bye.